to the book of Romans, chapter 2. This morning we looked at Romans 2, verses 1 through 3. And there we saw that the Apostle Paul uh, speaks directly to those who are self-righteous. Those who are quick to see the sins of others, but refuse to see their own need for Christ. And there Paul highlighted their hypocrisy, the fact that they do the very things for which they judge others. By the way, I mentioned this morning that, that most scholars think Paul has the Jews primarily in mind. When we look at the Old Testament, how often do we see the Jews as a nation doing the very same things as the pagan nations around them? And so what Paul says happened on a corporate scale there is true of individuals as well. That those who might consider themselves holy and self-righteous, if they would truly look at themselves, they would see they do the very things for which they judge others. And then Paul pointed out that their judgment of others proves that they themselves have no excuse before God. For if they are willing to judge others for these things, cannot God judge them for those very same things? And all of this that Paul says is set out of love. It's set out of a deep desire that the self-righteous would be humbled and would be broken and made able to receive the gospel. Yet perhaps someone refuses to repent because somehow they are entertaining the notion that they can escape God's judgment. And so Paul addressed that idea in verse 3, saying that if others do not escape your judgment and you are but a man, how in the world do you think you can escape God's judgment? Tonight we pick up with another reason that people fail to repent and turn to Christ. Namely, they presume on the kindness of God. Look at verses 4 and 5 with me. Romans 2, verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. I see four major doctrinal truths in these two verses. And the first truth that I see and that I want to draw our attention to is the truth that God's kindness offers no security for the impenitent. God's kindness offers no security for those who refuse to repent. Our God is kind and merciful. This verse talks about the riches of His kindness. He, God is not a little bit kind. God is not a little bit patient. He is wealthy in kindness. His kindness is amazing. His mercy is amazing. His patience is amazing. The way He forbears with people is beyond anything that we deserve. And yet, His kindness provides no safety for those who continue to live in rebellion against Him. Every man, woman, or child who lives day to day according to their own ways, refusing to submit to God's commands, 
and does so assuming that in the end God would just be kind to them and, and forgive all their sins, though they never repented. Those people were living on a false hope. In God's kindness, He offers the forgiveness of sins, but He offers this forgiveness of sins with a condition. We must raise the white flag of surrender. For us to be citizens of this glorious kingdom, we must be willing to submit ourselves to the King. Or He will not grant us citizenship. Were God to bless forever those who continue to live in sin, He would be an evil God, an unjust God, worse than the devil himself. And so here's the truth that we need to affirm. God's wondrous grace is offered to those who will repent. Matthew 3, verses 1 through 2. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to John to be baptized by him, he refused to baptize them saying, you are a brood of vipers, and he demanded that they bear fruit in keeping with repentance. The point? You cannot be baptized into this kingdom. You cannot identify yourself, or you should not identify yourself as a member of the people of God and one saved by Christ if you have not truly turned to Him and repented of your sin. Repentance is what Jesus called for. Matthew 4.17, we read, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this was the constant theme in the teaching of Christ. In Matthew 11.21, He said, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. In other words, when Jesus went to Chorazin, when Jesus went to Bethsaida, when Jesus went to Capernaum, what was He after? He was after repentance. Because they would not repent, He said they would be condemned. Matthew 12, 41, Jesus pointed to the example of Nineveh. Remember the great revival that happened in Nineveh when Jonah went and preached there and how they repented? Jesus said, the men of Nineveh, will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. What was Jesus after? Repentance. In Luke 13, we read, There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sin. And so this is a, talking about a murderous act of Pilate. Um, and, and here's how Jesus answered them. He said, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He wanted them to repent. He was after repentance. Luke 15, 10, Jesus said, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who, what? Repents. You see, the call of Jesus when He walked this earth was a call of repentance, a call to stop living your life your own way, 
forsaking God and His ways, but rather turning to Him, resting in Him, and receiving from Him a new life and walking in that new life. This is the call that Christ still gives us today. Sitting on His throne, that's where Jesus is right now, sitting on His throne in heaven, and He's working on earth through the Holy Spirit, through the Word of God, through the people of God, and what is Christ calling for in our world today? Repentance. Right before He ascended to heaven, He had His disciples with Him. And we're told that He opened their minds. This is Luke 24. He opened their minds to understand the Scriptures, and He said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And you just turn over a few pages to Acts chapter 2, day of Pentecost, Holy Spirit comes down, Peter begins to preach, the people cry out, what must we do to be saved? And Peter said, you must, what? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The call was to repent, The action that showed you were living a a new life, the, the action that showed that you were repenting and resolving to follow Christ was submitting yourself to baptism. And this is the call He gave the disciples and it's the call He's given to us as Christians to call people to repent and to be baptized in the name of Christ. There are many today who are taking a wondrous gift of God and distorting it to justify their sin. The gift is God's kindness and forbearance and patience with them. Every day, God is allowing these people to live. He's giving them breath in their bodies and strength in their bones. Every day, God is allowing them to go about their lives, enjoying many benefits and small pleasures Even right at this moment, God is preventing billions of people from falling this instant into hell. He's being patient with them. And the purpose of this great gift of His kindness, as we are about to see, is that these people would see God's kindness and it would move them to repent and to turn to Him. Yet how many have taken this gift of God's kindness and distorted it this way, saying, See? See how God continues to bless me as I continue living my life my own way? Surely this is God's sign of approval. Surely this means it's okay for me to live as I want. If God is treating me kindly today, certainly He will do so in the future and forever. Which is the very opposite of what God's kindness is meant to teach. To presume that God's kindness towards you today means that He will be forever patient with you and will never judge you is to misread the facts. The same God who is patient with unbelievers today has spoken clearly that a day of judgment is coming. The Lord's patience is great, but so is His justice and His love for righteousness. We must not use God's kindness as an excuse that keeps us from turning to the gospel. Rather, God's kindness should lead us to the gospel 
should lead us to salvation. It should lead us to repentance. Truth number one, there is no security in God's kindness for the impenitent. Truth number two, the kindness of God is meant to lead us to repentance. Look at verse four. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Notice that word meant. God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. In other words, there's a purpose in God's kindness. There's an intention behind God's kindness. There is a reason God is kind and patient towards the self-righteous and those who refuse to humble themselves and believe. And the intention behind God's patience with them is that he might lead them to repentance. If unbelievers would only take time to think upon God's kindness towards them, that kindness would lead them. It would take them by the hand, as one theologian says, and guide them into repentance. Talking about God's judgment and the horrors of hell is one way to lead people to repentance. But looking at God's daily kindnesses towards us as sinners is another way that God leads us to repentance. How does God do this? How does thinking about God's kindness towards us every moment lead unbelievers to repent and turn to Christ? Let me suggest three ways. Number one, God's kindness gives unbelievers time to repent rather than bringing them to judgment immediately. God would be absolutely righteous to cast all of humanity into the pits of hell this very moment. This moment, He would be just for everything we see to disappear and for us all to descend into hell. Every moment in which God puts up with us, every moment in which God is patient with us, allowing us to live before His face a little longer is a moment in which He is giving us opportunity to repent. Now I'm speaking mainly to unbelievers here because Paul is speaking to unbelievers here in a sense. He's created this, this character, old man, self-righteous, and he's, and he's addressing this self-righteous man and he's calling this man to repentance. And so that's what I'm doing in here tonight. This is grace. We are not promised tomorrow and God may take the life of someone in this room before this day is over. And if He does, He is free to do that. And none of us will be able to claim that God has been unfair. We can only be thankful that as abhorrent as our sin is before the eyes of God, He has been willing to put up with us for any time at all that we might repent and be saved. So one, God's kindness brings unbelievers to repentance by giving them time to repent, by postponing their judgment so that they might have time to be saved. Number two, God's kindness can awaken believers to God's love for them. This is another way that God's kindness can lead them to repentance, namely by looking at His kindness unbelievers can be awakened to God's love for them. 
How many who have lived in sin for decades have been brought to repentance because God opened their eyes to see how He had been loving them all those years. Even as they were spiteful and arrogant towards Him, He was providing for their needs. He was protecting them from danger. He was bringing words of truth into their lives. Maybe there is a woman who has a faithful grandmother who for years called on her to follow Jesus. And this woman loved her, loved her grandmother, but she couldn't stand the way her grandmother was always telling her to go to church and to read her Bible and to be all religious. And for years, this woman lived her, her own way, loving her grandmother, but wishing her grandmother would stop pushing that stuff on her. And then by God's grace, there comes a day when that woman realizes that that dear grandmother is a gift to her from God an ambassador of Christ, pointing her to salvation. And suddenly she sees that for years, as she has been rebelling against God, God has been being kind to her, not only giving her life, not only providing for her needs, but putting people like her grandmother in her life to wake her up so that she might see Christ and be saved. There's a lot of people that can give a testimony like that. Years I walked rebelling against God while He was being kind to me. And one day God woke me up to see His kindness. It changed everything. Now, by the way, God's kindness can also lead those who are not presumptuous in this way to be awakened to His love for them. Imagine, for example, a dear woman who lives day after day in depression because of things she's done. She is convinced that God does not love her. She is convinced there is no hope for her. She refuses to repent. She refuses to come to Christ, not because she assumes self-righteously that, that, that God just is going to forgive her and there's no reason for her to repent. No, she doesn't repent because she thinks there's no way God will ever forgive her. Her sins are too bad. She's messed up too, too badly. How might God help a person like that? see his love for her well maybe it's with a passage like this one because this passage can help a person like that say yes I see I have sinned badly and I do deserve hell but the fact that I'm not in hell now is evidence that God loves me the fact that I still have breath in my body and strength in my bones right now is fact that God is loving me right now. If God wanted me in hell, I'd be there this very moment. The fact that I'm alive, the fact that I still have opportunity to repent is evidence that I have not sinned too greatly, that God's grace cannot cover. No, He still loves me and He still calls on me to repent. If you ever have someone that you're talking to or witnessing to and they say, I've messed up too bad, God could never love me, you remind them of this. Are you breathing? And that's evidence that God is loving you this moment and giving you opportunity to repent. He does indeed love you. Seeing God's kindness can awaken us to His love and bring us to repentance third way that God's kindness leads unbelievers to repentance is this, by bringing unbelievers to conviction concerning their own sin. 
thought about a possible plot for a story as I was meditating on this point. And um, this is a bit graphic and a bit of a strange illustration, but I, I think maybe it will help. Um, in this story, there's a man who lives with his elderly mother, and this man runs a business from his home. This man has one employee who works for him there at the house, and this man is an overbearing boss. He is a cruel boss. He is a tyrant over this employee. His elderly mother, however, is filled with generosity and kindness. This employee cannot stand his boss, and day after day he harbors hatred towards his boss because of how cruel this man is to him. And the only bright spot in his whole work day is when the boss's mother comes to offer him refreshment, or drink, and treats him with friendliness and love. Well, eventually the employee becomes so filled with hatred towards his boss that he hatches a plan to kill his boss. He sneaks into the house at night and he quietly comes into the boss's bedroom and in the darkness begins furiously beating the man to death with a baseball bat. Then suddenly the lights come on and there is his boss standing in the doorway at the employee in utter shock because unbeknownst to the man with the bat, the boss and his mother had recently changed bedrooms. And there on the bed, bleeding and crying out, is the elderly mother who had been so kind. And now the man who committed this violent act is taken aback. Suddenly he's overcome with shame. Suddenly he is so, so sorry about what he has just done. Because this was not what he wanted. This is not what he meant. Now here's my question. Why this sudden change of heart in this man? Why does this man suddenly feel convicted for his sin? It's because he thought he was going to commit this act against a tyrant. But instead, when the lights came on, he saw that the one he had sinned against was no tyrant at all, but one who had loved him, one who had cared for him, one who had been friendly towards him. Now this is a bit of a stretch because God is certainly not a weak grandmother who can be beaten by a bat. We, we get that. But it resembles what happens in an unbeliever's heart when the lights turn on and they're awakened to see that the God they've been sinning against is not a cruel tyrant. He is a God of kindness and love who has been caring for them. Maybe when they were breaking God's commands, they saw Him as one who, who wanted to take away their fun, or they saw God as one who wanted to limit their freedom, or they saw God as one who wanted to bind them to His rules, and, and in their mind, God was a, was a tyrant, and they despised Him, and they did not hesitate to act wickedly against God. But now, as God's grace causes them to see His kindness as they begin to see how He has loved them all these years, even as they lived in disobedience, it changes them. This is not the God they thought they were sinning against. Here is a God who has been patient with them day in and day out, treating them with grace and love, even though they did not notice, even though they did not say thanks. God has been nothing but merciful and kind towards them, and this is how they treated Him. And in that moment, they are convicted, and they feel sorry, and they are ashamed. Now, by God's grace, they are ready to repent. 
and turn to God and be saved. You see, God's kindness is meant to lead people to repentance. It is not to be used as an excuse to continue living in sin. Before I move on to verse 5, let me press this question to us. Could it be that you are living in the midst of a thousand mercies from God and yet you still refuse to turn to Him and be saved? Here's how Spurgeon preached this to his church over a hundred years ago. It applies just as much to us today. Listen to this. Myriads of our fellow men have never had an opportunity of knowing Christ. The missionary's foot has never trodden the cities wherein they dwell, and so they die in the dark. Multitudes are going downward, downward. They do not know the upward road. Their minds have never been enlightened by the teaching of God's Word, and hence they sin with less grievousness of fault. You are placed in the very focus of Christian light, and yet you follow evil. Will you not think of this? Time was when a man would have to work for years to earn enough money to buy a Bible. There were times when he could not have earned a Bible even with all that toil. Now the Word of God lies upon your table. You have a copy of it in almost every room of your house. Is this not a great gift from God? We live in the land of the open Bible. We live in the land of the preached Word of God. In this you prove the richness of God's goodness. Do you despise this wealth of mercy? Is this a small thing to you? Well, it ought not to be a small thing to us. When we consider God's daily kindness and mercies towards us, it ought to lead us turn to Christ and to love Him, to live by faith in Him. The third truth I see in this passage is that every day that a person lives in God's kindness but refuses to repent is a day in which he is storing up wrath for himself. Look at verse 5. See verse 5? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up for yourself, storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. In other words, what if you don't repent? What if you live years and years, your entire life, with God giving you breath and strength and letting you enjoy daily pleasures and and you've lived your whole life and you've never looked at the kindness of God and repented? How then will God deal with you? Well, this verse tells us that every day you live is another day in which you are spurning the kindness of God. Every day you live is another in which you are living in treason against the king of the universe and there will be a day in which you have to pay for this. Unbeliever, every second you live rejecting Christ is a second in which you are deepening the extent of your crime. And the longer your rebellion, the more severe the penalty because we reap what we sow. Every good gift you have received ungratefully from God's hand, caring not for Him while you enjoyed His gifts, 
only increases the condemnation ahead of you. In the end, it will have been better had you never been born than to have lived all these many years and experienced all these wonderful gifts from God and now you have to pay for them. You are living on credit and all God asks you to do is to recognize this, to see His kindness towards you even now and to give Him the honor to which He's rightfully due. Even this command to turn from your wicked ways and to honor God and love God is a command for your good. Why will you continue to store up wrath for yourself when eternity with God in heaven is offered to you? But if you keep on living without repentance, when will this debt that you owe to God and to His justice be paid? When is your court date to stand trial and begin receiving your punishment? When will your refusal to repent catch up with you? Paul tells us in verse 5. He says, it will be on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. This day of wrath is elsewhere called the day of the Lord. The Bible tells us much about this day. Let me read you just one passage. This is from Zephaniah. You read Zephaniah much? This is from Zephaniah concerning the day of the Lord. Zephaniah 1, verses 14 through 18. Listen and consider what God is saying. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of wrath of the Lord. In the fire of His jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end He will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. Now you have a choice. You can believe that or not. You choose not to believe that that day is coming. If you believe that you will be able to escape the judgment of God, then you can continue living in self-righteousness. Walk that path and see where it gets you. But I urge you to believe it. And I urge you to let that warning move you to repentance. Let me remind you of one more passage. This is just three verses from Malachi 4. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. 
But, listen to this, Christian. For you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. This is hard. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Now the Lord Jesus and the Apostle Paul teach in the New Testament that the way that all fleshes out is that on the day that the Lord returns, if we have already died, our soul will return with the Lord. If we're still here on earth, we will be caught up with the Lord. And what will we do with the Lord? And with all His angels, we're told? Together, we will bring judgment on the wicked who are here. And we will bring this present earth to its end. And a new heavens and a new earth will be inaugurated for the people of God. In other words, the day of wrath is a day of wrath to unbelievers. It is the day of redemption for Christians. It is the day of salvation. It is the day in which our Lord comes to take us to Himself forever. Paul says in Romans 2.5 that it is on this day that God's righteous judgment will be revealed. No more patience. No more forbearance. No more time to repent. God's judgment will have come. For the impenitent, this will be the worst day of their lives. For us as Christians, this will be the best day of our lives. It will be the day our Savior is revealed from heaven and that we and all God's people are fully united with Him forever. It is the day in which we will enter paradise. This will be a fantastic day and it can be that for anyone who will stop their foolish rebellion against a good God and receive His free grace. The day of the Lord will be for God's people a great wedding day. And it will be that for us because God in His grace moved us to repent of our sins and come to Him. And we who know the Lord Jesus should forever be grateful for this. And we should do all that we can to point others to Christ and to call them to repentance while there is still time. Are there any questions about Romans 2, verses 1 through 5?